This is the Average Guy Network, and you have found Cyber Frontiers, show number 32, recorded on September 12th, 2016. Here on Cyber Frontiers, we explore cybersecurity, big data, and the technologies that are shaping the future, all from an academic perspective. I'm your host, Jim Collison, broadcasting live from the Average Guy Network Studios here in Bellevue, Nebraska. And of course, we'll post the uh, we'll, we'll post the show with world class show notes out at theaverageguy.tv. If you have questions, comments, or contributions, we'd love to hear from you. Give us send us an email, uh, especially if you have topic ideas, things you'd like Christian to cover. Maybe a, even a mini ACA, which is Ask Christian Anything. Send us an email, Jim at theaverageguy.tv, or find me on Twitter at Jay Collison. Of course, theaverageguy.tv is powered by Maple Grove Partners Web Hosting. Get secure, reliable, high speed hosting from people that you know and trust. You can get to more information, visit maplegrovepartners.com plans, especially WordPress optimized plans. Start as cheap as $10 a month. Great security, great plans. Check it out, maplegrovepartners.com. And, of course, now Cyber Frontiers is part of the Geeks Network. Find the link to this show and many other great podcasts out at thegeeksnetwork.com. All right, Christian, man, you must be ready to go because you're breathing heavy into that mic. How are you? I'm good, man. I'm uh, wow. Am I that heavy? I, I guess, I'm, I I guess I'm up close on it, but I'm doing well. Uh, it's September, so the weather is finally getting back to tol- tolerable levels, and um, a couple weeks in new uh, senior year. So it's been a fun ride already, and the time has flown by pretty fast from when we started this show. Uh, and uh, it's good to be back. Crazy, and only and yet only 32. In this, it's that's you know, <laughs> we've been yeah. doing for a while. Thirty-two, it's all good. Uh, we we like to think of quality as opposed to quantity, right? Right. Hey, it's September twelfth. Yesterday was September eleventh, the anniversary of, of course, the nine eleven attacks that uh, really kind of changed America in a lot of ways and uh, really put us on a footing that would I actually would thought would maybe we would go broke by now at the at the rate we have done defense spending. Mm-hmm. And all things that we've done. Christian, I wanted to ask your opinion. When we think about, you know, 9-11 changed our footing in the world uh, from a military standpoint, definitely. We sent troops to the Middle East. They've been there pretty much the entire time. Uh, I think we put group troops on the ground pretty fast. Let's just say at least the last 13 years. Um, we, we still have some folks there. From a cybersecurity standpoint, did, how much has changed and what have you seen change? Is it is that as big of a threat when we think about, you know, we hear about what's going on with the Russians and we hear about what's going on out of China. But has there been a, has this long, drawn-out conflict in the Middle East changed our cybersecurity footprint at all, and, and has it changed? Sure. Um, you know, I, I think for me, uh, when I think about 9-11, surprisingly, the first, you know, every, every, almost everyone you ask, you know, do you remember where you were 9-11? I do. Um, I was in the first grade, actually, um, and I remember an old CRT television monitor hung up on the, on the wall, um, and I remember uh, the first tower being crashed into, and I remember school being dismissed, actually, shortly after that, even though, you know, I was up in New York at the time, uh, not in New York City, uh, but you know, pretty much every school in the state was uh, evacuated, and um, you know, so for me, uh, at such a young age like that, the impressions that were left weren't really anything that 
you know, I could consciously reflect on at the time, I don't think. But um, it's a changing world in what we define um, tools for terrorism, tools for warfare, um, tools for militaries across the world. And, you know, I think in 2001, um, we really saw for the first time that airplanes were this, you know, very kind of destructive weapon in a way that we hadn't seen before. Um, and that's not to say that, you know, people hadn't conceived that before because part of the architectural design of the original World Trade Center, um, actually the architects did plan for this very scenario of, well, if a large projectile were to be um, hurtled into a part of the building, would the structural integrity still hold? And uh, I don't remember the exact analysis that was done, but basically something in the way the explosion happened um, caused a structural deficiency that they didn't anticipate, right? So obviously when things are burning it can't be good, but you know they had they had at least thought of this scenario in, in some respect uh, when they built the building and so you know I think it was the first time that people saw kind of a conventional terrorism, a conventional tools um, you know, we heard for a long time in sci-fi movies things like uh, biochemical warfare, and that has now become a very more real thing, more real situation. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of different tools, and when we look at kind of the cyber landscape, no one in 2001 was thinking about cybersecurity. It just it wasn't on the newspapers, it wasn't in the boardroom, the average user wasn't really dealing with it. Yeah, there was some cutesy stuff at the time, don't get me wrong, but the types of, you know, primitive viruses and malware of that era um, were things that you usually had to be a computer hobbyist to really kind of know and understand, whereas now it's, you know, cyber is so pervasive whether you're looking at it from a a military standpoint or a commercial standpoint or, you know, a financial standpoint, um, it has become another one of those tools that people didn't initially expect to be an issue. It's now a huge issue and now, you know, different powers at B are trying to leverage that uh, capability. And so, you know, I think when we look at how does cyber uh, cyber security and cyber warfare play a role going forward, um, I, I think it's fair to say that it's something that's much more pervasive than an airplane, right? Uh, with an airplane, you can, there are pretty pretty good ways for planning and kind of deterring that from happening a second time. Um, but we have a lot of answers uh, left unanswered in the cybersecurity domain that um, makes that a really big question mark. And I think it's going to be interesting to watch over the next five to ten years um, what types of threats may emerge. Uh, we've talked before about things like attacks on our electrical grid or, or other critical infrastructure being a real concern. Um, you know, we've never really had a, a massive countrywide power outage because of a cybersecurity attack, but that's a very real threat. Um, what could happen when something like that combined with other unforeseen elements could lead to causing fear, panic, you know, the types of things that um, are indicative of terrorism. Uh, and so it's, it's going to be very, I think, interesting, but it's also going to be very important that 
the cybersecurity, cybersecurity community works hard and fast over the next 10 years to really start redefining the way we think about this problem um, because we're spinning our wheels in some regards and um, it's it's continued to be a cat and mouse game and I think that speaks to the potential for um, cybersecurity to be used in a malicious way, you know, looking at it from a, a, a military or our, our national security. Uh, you saw recently in the last couple of weeks a lot of people are concerned about uh, polling, polling system. It's it's an electoral year. Folks want to know who their president's going to be. They watch polls for that. Um, folks go out and cast one vote per person. It's a democracy. Uh, but what if... Um, your electoral systems are not secure. Um, what if a headline reads that cybersecurity um, or a cyber intrusion um, reduces confidence in uh, the votes that we cast? And so these are very fundamental issues that I think folks should be thinking about when we start, you know, really reflecting on how technology is having a play in the future stability of our country. And you know, I, I think. I think it's going to be one of those things where um, it's we'll really have to see how it plays out. There's a lot of different scenarios, um, and because the technology is still not undefined but um, unparameterized in so many ways, I think it's it's too too hard to predict where we're really headed with that. So you say too hard to predict, but as we think about the future of the internet and because of those dangers. Does it begin to get more, um, less of the internet and more of just a big government-controlled network? You know, China has certainly led the way, kind of in that, and uh, and nobody's really followed suit for the most part since then. But certainly with those, I mean, let let's just say a, a massive cyber attack on the United States and it takes down the power grid and takes three days to bring it back up and the chaos that ensues. Don't you think the U.S. government <laughs> begins to take some different steps to an open Internet? Yeah, I mean, the whole open Internet debate has been kind of interesting. I mean, uh, this year, um, Obama has pretty much, from a policy position, um, positioned the country to kind of hand over ICANN and some of its primary responsibilities to, um, you know, the international community instead of having the U.S. controlling and being the gatekeeper of a lot of the Internet. And I think the reality here is that maybe one of those disruptive game changers for how we deal with some of the security challenges is a, dis a decentralized Internet. And I don't know what the tipping point for that would be necessarily, but I can say a decentralized Internet where there are no gatekeepers introduces a whole different set of security parameters than the model that we have now where there are many different gatekeepers of different sizes and depending on which gates you have access to or you infiltrate um, determines your control and your scope over different networks and, and the internet at large so um, you know we've seen countries that censor the internet connection um, we've seen shifts in who controls what aspects but you know, I, I do believe that 
moving to a decentralized model may reduce uh, or change some of the parameters for the security concerns that we're seeing and I don't really know how feasible that is. I mean there have been experimentations and certain technology platforms that are enablers for having a decentralized internet um, but it's really hard to say if that's a model that people are comfortable with or a model that's actually sustainable in the long term. Hmm. Canada, or, um, uh, Randy had asked a question in the chat room. He says, I'm curious on what you guys think of the Demon Saw, the John, uh, John McAfee's project, since he claims it's how the Internet should have been created for anonymy and, or for, uh, to be anonymous and for security. What do you think? Um, I'm not familiar with his model, to be honest. Um, interesting. If you, uh, if you do, just if you're listening, if you go to Demon, D-E-M-O-N, Demon Saw, I don't know if that's how it's pronounced right, um, Let's do some on-the-show research. Could have the emphasis, you know, the emphasis on the wrong syllable. But um, yeah, just interesting. A secure, anonymous, free, and decentralized X platform information sharing application with end-to-end -end encryption and no client P2P. Well, you know, yeah. we've talked about this before. These kinds of things before, right? Where we where we talk about being anonymous and being able to share and some of those kinds of things. I, I think. Uh, that's a little bit of a different discussion that we're, than what we're, you know, leading off when we think about national security and uh, and those kinds of things. When we, you know, when we think about a government going after governments now, and it's 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 happening, right? We're seeing though. Just just go to any of the sites and and you know, there's and I forget the name of it where it shows you <laughs> current attacks that are going on, you know, and oh, um, blasting out of China and blowing yeah. and. You know, the U.S. can just continue to get pummeled, um, and there's some firing back, right, from from that standpoint. But you know, it's interesting to we have yet to have a really 9/11 incident uh, that's cyber driven. I mean, we've had all these maybe these tests or these little tiny ones and some things where people's email gets hacked, right, and where you know those kinds of things, but. But nothing on a national scale that really hurts when we think about the the way Americans feel about, you know, 9/11 shook America's confidence just to the just to the core, and it needed, it felt like it needed to respond in some kind of way. Now that response is is gone on for 15 years now, um, you know, and it's had various forms and waves of of action that's taken place. But I I I don't think we've really experienced a cyber a deep Cyber security, um, you know, dilemma that would and and I don't know, Christian. What I, I don't know, what, and I and I think I mean certainly we think about. There's been plenty of data that's been breached, right? Plenty of data, and yet we still kind of yawn for the most part. Well, okay, you know, I'll yeah. get a credit card or whatever. Is it going to take the power getting shut off for a week? Because the grid. Um, who was I talking to? I was doing an interview. With somebody at one of the conferences I went to, and and he was one of these guys that runs software on the grid. So, they they are keepers of all the grid action that happens on the West Coast. So, anytime transfer uh, power goes across the grid, these guys are responsible to make sure that stays up and is working. And he said, in the midst of the interview, Jim, if we saw a nationwide grid, I mean, if one section of the grid went down for whatever reason, it would it would cause failure across the entire grid for the most part. And depending on you know a hot, a really warm afternoon here in the United States when everybody's sucking down power and you know those kinds of things, it could be even more catastrophic. And he said it would take days 
to bring the grid back up. It's not something I can, oh, sorry, you know, flip the switch and it would turn back on again. So do you think it's going to take some kind of physical event where people's, you know, people's stakes unthaw in their freezer and there's a little bit of chaos because you don't, I mean, we, we had a snowstorm here in Nebraska well, years ago now that really knocked everything out for a couple days. And it, you know, it wasn't as bad as people eating people, but it was getting pretty close and it wasn't just a couple days, you know. Do you think it, it takes that kind of event? Yeah, I mean, certainly a lot of what you've seen in um, just loosely cyber warfare has really been an information warfare. So the more breaches, leaks, data bits that are getting out, um, the more the feud kind of propels itself. I certainly agree that we haven't seen that on any kind of scale with you know, with core infrastructure systems. So um, to the point, and, and again, to be clear, to the point where we're talking about some national scale outage or issue, whether that's power or, or some other type of core infrastructure. And so it's very well possible that such an event like that would definitely be another kind of call or reckoning point for our country or for other countries even to really step up our game and figure out um, what needs to be done. But it's clear over the last, I would say, three years or so that um, Congress and the Obama administration have taken a very proactive approach to funding um, cybersecurity bills and, and so forth. And, and so I think the government has started to really recognize the, the value of fixing this issue. That doesn't necessarily mean that when you throw money at a problem, you get a groundbreaking solution, no. Um, but I do think the awareness can be heightened from you know, where we looked at it five years ago. And so it's possible there's already the right level of awareness to have the right people starting to look at these problems from different perspectives and different disciplines. Uh, you need to have that happening in order to be able to start cracking at some of these you know, fundamental issues that are just as much societal as they are technical. And um, yes, while I certainly think you know a grid event or something similar could um, be a forcing or a tipping point, I have some confidence at least that the repetitiveness and the frequency of some of the, you know, headlines from the last couple of years uh, might be enough to start at least putting people in that direction. Okay. Well, it'll be interesting to see what uh, what, what we come up with, uh, you know, post post nine eleven, post whatever, you know, as we think about the future and and what that looks like. Uh, there's a lot of un unanswered questions out there. I think. In what could happen and what will happen, you know, who knows? From that standpoint, it it is, you know, we're gadget on at in home gadget geeks, the other the other you know show on the network. We often talk about all the all the best parts of innovation and all the best parts of well, best parts we think of what's come out of all this technology with these gadgets and connected devices and you know automated uh, door locks now for your house and lights that come on when you talk and. AI and and you know all the machine learning stuff that we talked about uh, that we've been talking about that's all the kind of the best of it and then the dark side uh, when we think about what could happen as we think about these kinds of events and sure. uh, just, and just who knows hey I mentioned AI and all of a sudden like that word is caught on AI and machine learning have become the new you know they're the new black right yeah when you think about it 
Um, are we when we think about artificial intelligence and what when we think of it, you know, we think of kind of a self-thinking self, right? Right. Kinds of things. What, to, are are we really even that close? I mean, no. <laughs> well, uh, it depends. In some areas, yes. In other areas, really no. Um, you know, I always point to the uh, creepy bots. I call them the uh, the really good. DARPA research-funded ones that Google helped to build and prototype where, you know, if you kick them over, they can pick themselves back up and they have a very responsive motor system and, um, I mean, they have these huge freakish head apparatuses going on to get all the sensory input, but, I mean, those things are wicked awesome. Um, and so it seems like this very real leap to, holy cow, they're walking and moving and now if we kick them over, they can recover. Um, you know, those are some examples of AI has really come a long way, um, but it's still, a lot of it is not necessarily the true, like, thinking or creating something from from nothing, so to speak, and, and so what do I mean by that? Well, when you look at cybersecurity, for example, um, you see the reason why we have a cat and mouse game a lot of times is because someone does something and we react to it by doing things like, make a signature, understand it, and patch it. So in doing that, because we're being reactive, um, the types of predictive techniques that we've created for doing things like analyzing malware, um, predicting the next zero-day vulnerability on a network, uh, the current subject of my research thesis, um, and other types of predictive capabilities have really not been pushed to the extent that they need to be when we talk about AI and machine learning. One of the big advantages that you get from machine learning is the ability to stop, you know, doing things just based on building facts that you've already seen, um, but to start using statistical methods and inferences to really build up an algorithm and an intuition where a machine learns over time. And so I think, you know, for folks who aren't in this area, people get really confused what that means. What does it mean for a machine to learn? Um, and in the most simple way that we can define it, a machine that takes uh, data inputs and sees examples and, and understands, okay, when I see this example, it, it corresponds to this, um, getting that kind of ground intuition where a machine can start self-identifying ground truth is a really important step towards us being able to do that better and better. Um, when you look at machine learning in the cybersecurity context, one of the big things you want to do is a technique called classification. And that's a huge portion of where most machine learning algorithms fall today. You want to classify things as malware or non-malware. You want to classify things as being performant or non-performant. Um, and so these classifiers, um, there are a lot of different machine learning algorithms that can try and look at a bunch of different feature values and say, okay, let's make some logical groupings here based on the statistics. And that's a surprisingly um, useful capability because you can, what I call, feign intelligence, meaning there are some properties that are um, more novel than just having a database of recall and recollection and action. Now you have a database that is training a machine to then be able to get, not guess, but you know, reliably look and make decisions on its own based on prior history. It's much like 
we as humans start to make decisions as we get older based on our life's experiences much in the same way are we trying to make machine learning that in its own field and, and, and right so you know we are at the point where we are starting to look at how these techniques apply in cybersecurity there have definitely been some appliances products and other research programs that start to tackle this issue but we're really nowhere close to the AI apocalypse when it comes to you know, machine learning and these other technologies are going to suddenly make machines incredibly capable. We're just not there. Um, you know, other examples, Watson and, and so forth and Jeopardy and becoming a second year med student. Again, using some really novel techniques, really using prediction and using things that are above and beyond basic fact recall, but not really the true, you know, human-based thinking. And, and, and because we as humans don't really fully understand how our brain works. I mean, we do from a certain perspective, but there are areas where we're completely oblivious. Um, for example, how do you define human consciousness? How do you know what region of the brain human consciousness exists? Um, how is uh, consciousness developed over over time? If we can't even really answer that question fully from a bio uh, biological perspective, then there's no real way to even begin thinking about uh, codifying that into a machine. And so, while we can, you know, do things like, for example, in, in machine learning, there's a type of algorithm called a neural network or a neural net, and it's based on this intuition of our brain has a nervous system and synapses, and these synapses send different signals that tell our brain um, how to understand certain perceptory input and make information and decisions, uh, much in the same way as a neural network where you're sending it different data inputs and those synapses are kind of acting as weights and so it builds these weighted patterns in the data to then build an algorithm that can smartly tell you how to move and understand different data. So we can storyboard some of this stuff and we can put some loose parameters around it um, but we really can't necessarily get to the point where machines are are thinking like humans and, and some might argue that that's not the right approach either because some might argue you know if we're going down this whole AI apocalypse thing that you know machines are going to self-learn and be better than humans are and there's one of two ways you get there one you codify the human information, learning, knowledge capabilities that make a human brain work the way it does, and you say, because a machine can do these things thousands of times faster, it will de by definition be smarter than a human, or B, you come up with an entirely new way of thinking that is so different from the human brain, it is smarter. Um, you know, most folks say we don't use more than 5 to 10% of our brain as it is, which makes us wonder what the other 90% is doing. Um, and so we have it right. It's always been a, you know, if we if you think about a Darwinian approach to it, you know, our brain is what's given us an advantage. Why would we have so much of it if we're only using five or ten percent of it? Which is, I always found that 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 statistic kind of interesting. It was kind of like, really, are we just being hard on ourselves, or is that yeah. really true? You know, because it wouldn't be there if we didn't need it. Yeah, no, right on. And um, I I think that when we talk about just the fact that there's that 90% gap of nothingness um, makes you kind of wonder, well, what if we were building machine learning models that were um, <laughs> based on the 90% that we don't understand, so to speak? Right. Um, and so there may be a lot of learning techniques that we really just haven't gotten there yet. Some of that is because of the mathematical principles that underlie 
this space, right? I mean, as the math and as the statistical theories advance, so too can the computer science. Um, but sometimes the computer science is dependent on some mathematical principles, and if those are not really well fleshed out or advanced, then you're going to run up against a wall to some degree. So what are you showing? Um, so, so this is a nice segue into some aspects of my research that I think uh, folks will find interesting. And, you know, what is a great use case for machine learning is to try and see, um, can you use predictive machine learning-based techniques to detect and classify malware? And this, is a, this would be a great capability if anyone could do it perfectly. There's a lot of papers out on the internet about it. No one does it perfectly, but uh, one of the great things about this space is that you'll see a lot of, uh, you know, PhD theses and, and other uh, types of research documents where people peel off a very particular subset of the problem in the hopes that we advance the field enough that one of those subset examples can be used to generalize into the larger thing. Um, and so part of my research has actually been downloading some of the worst terrible malware you could find and saying, let's, let's let it loose. Um, and so I let it loose in my own sandbox environment, and I want to see what this malware is doing to the machine, what this malware is doing to the network, because I want to be able to try and build the predictive technologies, algorithms, and analytics that are going to catch new malware that hasn't been detected yet. And so when we talk about the cat and mouse game that we talked about earlier, a lot of what we do in today's cybersecurity landscape is say, oops, that's a virus, or oops, that's an issue. Let's make a signature for it so that other machines don't get that same virus. And then if, if, you, if, a, if a machine is looking for this and you have your antivirus on, your antivirus is just a huge database of signatures. And if your signatures match up, great, you have a virus. If they don't, then it doesn't. Um, there's plenty of examples, uh, I won't enumerate them here, of how viruses daily rewrite themselves so that signatures are useless. And so a signature is like a one-time snapshot as opposed to the reality of what the malware is. It's much more interesting to understand the behaviors and the patterns of data that malware can leave in order to be able to try and better detect it. And so um, one of the interesting issues, it wasn't really an issue, but certainly was a, an area of contemplation, is what's the best place to go and find some really nasty malware? And so, um, you know, when you look at a lot of tools and resources, you can look up a signature in the database, you can look up some stuff about it, but not a lot of the, like, commercial, like Norden and the whole, you know, nine yards, they're not just going to give you the, the raw sample, right? Um, so this, there's this really cool website by um, Shadow Server, and these guys um, separately um, run the Shadow Server Foundation, and it's kind of like a, uh, call it like a volunteer security professional group, but they made this really fantastic application called uh, Malware, M-A-L-W-R, um, and what it allows you to do is uh, essentially build a, it's a huge database of, of course, it's down right now, or I had the wrong link in. Um, yeah, it looks like it's down right now. But um, it was a really cool database of um, malware, antivirus, uh, et cetera. And what it, what it does is their sandboxed machines 
basically run the virus and and see everything it does to the box and then they capture that information and put it in a database. So at a high level, if I see a malware with a given signature or a given name, I can look up that signature in their database and find out a bunch of cool stuff. I can see what uh, DNS servers it tried to uh, talk to, what IP addresses it tried to talk to, what files it tried to download. I can see how it modified the Windows file system, how it modified the registry. So it's capturing and seeing just exactly what this virus does. So you get a much more behavioral understanding of the virus than you do as like a high level, oh, it's the signature match. Um, then what's really great on top of that is you can go and get the raw file for yourself. So I've been downloading malware wholesale and um, doing some of this technique myself of... Christian, that's a funny sentence. So I've been downloading malware wholesale. Wholesale, <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, my usual disclaimer of not deploying it or putting it anywhere bad, these are all on sandbox sanctioned machines, and if you want to be doing that, you should be doing that as well. Um but this is really cool because you can, you know, run these binaries and um, you can observe the behavior for yourself. And it's a great way to build data sets and understand malware in a way that might allow you to pursue some of this research. So part of my research requires gathering a lot, a lot, a lot of data on this stuff um, so that I can put together the smart Augo magic algorithms that keeps this stuff from showing up on networks before it's even detected as such. Um, and so, drop this back to your camera real quick, so we can. Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, but so that's that's a really um, cool capability. So I encourage you to go to that site, malwr.com. Um, this is the first time their site has been down, so I promise you that's not a regular happening. But really cool way to do that. Um, there are some other example sites that I have found in the process of doing this. One is called uh, virusshare.com. Um, Full disclaimer, all of the websites themselves are safe. It's only if you are going and actually clicking the download button of the malware and running it that you're going to have an issue. Um, so you can view these websites in a regular machine or what have you. Um, but if you want to run experiments, uh, open up a VM and have fun. Um, some other guidance on this is that you get different behaviors of malware based on whether or not your box is connected to the internet or it's disconnected. So... I've done some experimentations where I download the virus, I drop it onto this box that has no internet, and then I watch it, and I, I notice that it starts trying to call out to its control server, but it never can, you know, there are some viruses where it has to go out and get the rest of the payload for it to hose your machine. The whole payload isn't on your box at the start. Um, and so you'll see that where your box will be fine because it can't go out and talk to the internet to finish the hosing process. Um, there are other viruses that are self-contained and will hose it right away. Um, the cool thing about working in the virtual machine space is that you can snapshot your VM and quickly revert to a state where it wasn't uh, infected so that you can quickly kind of see and iterate over different malware. And so for folks who are interested in learning a little bit more about how viruses behave in the box in a safe way, this is really cool. Um, and so you can download a bunch of different samples and uh, one of the big spaces right now that is of interest to me is ransomware. Uh, and we've talked and heard about ransomware time and time again as being like a major issue. You can go find some really great samples on uh, malwr.com of recent ransomware strains that um, are really making life 
hellishly difficult for people. Um, and so this is a really cool area of study um, for people who are in the uh, security space. So how do we keep the bad guys? I mean, it, that's open for them as much as it is for you, right? Yeah, but I mean, the thing about this database is that it's, yeah, so it's a good point. But um, the original authors of this malware obviously wrote it before it showed up in this database. So it's one of those things where the virus is already out in the wild, and then the good guys are going and uploading it to the database and getting signatures for it and understanding how to stop it. That doesn't mean that there isn't a script kitty out there that's going and saying, oh, let me take all these, you know, free malware and find ways to launch them. Of course, that's entirely illegal, um, and we cautionly advise you against it. Um, but, you know, that is a reality. Uh, the people who are doing this professionally and uh, with m malice and intent are writing their own and, and launching them. They're, you know, the reuse aspect is true to the extent of strains of viruses, which is more because they're trying to avoid detection and antivirus, not because they're just trying to reuse something that someone else wrote. Yeah, so good good for the good guy, good for the bad guy from that sense, but better than the good guys not getting a look at it at all so that you can't, right? Because here you're trying to do some research that will help in the future, and, uh, and so you got to have access to those things as well. Are they back up? Sure. Uh, no, this is one of the other websites I mentioned, virusshare.com. This one's a little bit more old school looking than the other one, but I just figured I'd give you an example. Um, this just on their homepage, they show the most recent sample that's been uploaded. So you can see, okay, it's a Windows portable executable. It has a GUI. Um, you can see some of the header information about the executable and understand. You can see the different signatures of where you would look up this virus elsewhere. Um, you can see some of the engines that will detect it. So if I go to VirusTotal, which is a pretty commonly known database for I give you a signature and you tell me whether it's infected or not, you can see this is a pretty new virus. It's not well recognized by folks because only one out of the 51 virus engines that VirusTotal checks against is able to detect it. Um, and so this is a great example of signature-based malware totally failing um, when only one out of 51... Uh, antivirus software is able to detect this type of sample. Uh, and this is why, you know, I would then take and copy this signature, whether it's the MD5, SHA-1, etc. I would copy this, go over hopefully to malware, which probably isn't back up. I would search for it, and then I could see the behaviors and more information about it, which is pretty cool. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. When's uh, is this to get? Do you have all year to work on this on this paper? Or is yeah. It so well, um, I'm doing it in stages. Uh, there's a lot more aspects to the research that we will keep hush hush until papers are out. Um, but the uh, crux of it is a year long effort. Um, this is one kind of small piece or um, you know area for exploration when it comes to getting data to do the real research. So cool. Well, we'll keep. Uh... We'll keep our ears to the ground and our mouths closed until the <laughs> until the end Very of the year. Maybe we can, yeah, maybe we can uh, we can get you to do a little bit of a presentation uh, here. Well, is that something like how, how does so when will you submit that and then do you have to do some kind of defense or how, how's that going to work? Yeah, so I mean, right now um, uh, the papers that I'm looking to publish are things that I will submit to conference proceedings, and so. Um, you know, once I know whether or not they've been accepted to conferences, I'll, you know, be able to share and publish, publish them. 
Um, this is groundwork for my master's in computer science, um, which will be a defense of thesis uh, down the road. Cool. Um, but I won't have to do that defense at the end of this year. Okay, so you got you have a little bit of time from that. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. You always talk about uh, you know you never have a zero attack surface, right? It's just decreasing and getting the smallest possible footprint. Um, it's been a while since we've you know we talked about the average guy from a security standpoint. Has it gotten, you know, in, in antivirus has kind of fallen off the radar a little bit as far as a topic. Like, mm -hmm. don't, it just doesn't seem to get talked about all that much anymore. Windows has a new version out in Windows 10, and, you know, there's all the standard. Has it gotten better or worse, in your opinion? Is it the same? Any, it, any I mean, it's... For the average guy? Yeah, it's it's a very bland technology, like I said earlier. I mean, when the core of the technology is based on does this signature exist or does it not, um, it's who's the best at playing cat and mouse. And so I think at this point, you know, there's no real groundbreaker or discriminator for this antivirus does it better than that. It really comes down to are people are are the companies that are producing these antivirus softwares actually keeping their databases up to date, which they all are, and they all do pretty rapid pace. And so then you ask, okay, what are some of the other performance discriminators? And for a while it was um, it was performance of the antivirus. You know, folks folks would pick antivirus based on what didn't chew up their CPU at night. Well, now that's not really an issue anymore either. So it's kind of fallen off the radar because it's like whatever floats your boat. If you want to go buy the most expensive thing you can find, have a field day. Can you probably get away with doing the same for free? Yeah, you probably can. Uh, like you're saying, the stuff available in Windows 10 now and some of the other mechanisms really make that type of uh, defense mechanism kind of very standard and rudimentary. So I think from an average guy perspective, um, antivirus is still kind of the de facto, I'm going to keep my PC safe. Uh, the reality, I think, uh, that more people should be looking at as the average guy is how do you configure your router and your devices to stay off the sites that are going to get you hosed in the first place? Because I think the average guy is not going to be doing the types of behavioral analysis that we're talking about. But the average guy can make a good and reasonable effort with minimal technical understanding to, you know, uh, decrease if if you want to decrease a surface, decrease the surface of sites that your computer can possibly go to. Um, that will definitely decrease the overall capability for you to get infected. Um, this is a practice that I implement regularly. We've talked about the MVPS host file and other techniques for you know keeping a long list of stuff from ever being able to make a connection. For people who are using things like PFSense, there are a lot of powerful capabilities in there to keep your boxes from getting you know, really um, shot. And so uh, I think as antivirus kind of continues to be more just uh, taken for granted, folks will move in the direction of starting to look at how to secure their network more than they look at how to secure their PC with the understanding that if their network is secure, they're reducing the chance that all the devices on the network are um, at risk. Do, do you think that's coming from a hardware manufacturer? I mean, you know, Google's gotten in the game with the OnHub, and there's some other smarter wireless hubs and routers that have come out. Modems aren't changing at all. <laughs> like, yeah. They're the same thing, and all they're worried about is the DOCSIS and how fast can this thing be. And so do you see it coming from hardware, software? I mean, antivirus is easy because you install it, and it's done. Routers have not picked up like that. You, we, people don't treat their routers like they do a PC, right? They kind of turn it on 
make sure they get wireless. <laughs> you know, now maybe put a password on it. Mm -hmm. But, but uh, where, where do you see that coming from? Um, yeah, no, that's a good point. I, I think I think the the capabilities I'm talking about are things that are already there, already implemented. Um, I don't see I don't see hardware level, um, I guess, defense mechanisms being more prevalent than they are right now in the home environment. I think you know every home having their own intrusion detection systems a little bit much. Um, but I do think that these types of devices might start to have more built-in capabilities for that. So you might start to see hardware manufacturers maybe build a special chip to do some off-site processing of packets going through a router to try and say, oh, this packet definitely is no good. Um, but having separate hardware resources to do that type of analysis, because obviously it's an expense and can degrade the performance of the network. Um, but I, I mostly see the impetus being that folks are going to realize that you know antivirus only protects you so far. You can have perfectly paid for antivirus on your computer that um, does very uh, that that still you know you're sitting on a hose box. Um, the difference between an antivirus software and an antivirus software that's good might be that um, some antivirus software does look for some of the behavioral stuff as opposed to just signatures. So, you know, when you scan your file system to see if you have viruses, that's all signatures. But if you have things like a guard, like in Malwarebytes Pro, if you buy the premium version, you have ActiveGuard, that's actively looking at processes, backgrounds, tasks, etc., and saying, do I see any type of executable that's doing something that I wouldn't expect it to do? Same thing for the impetus of uh, UAC, the elevated administrative privileges that started in Windows Vista. Same thing. If you're asking for stuff that seems a little bit much, we're going to check that and make sure that's really what you want to do. Um, so I see those as all being factors driving us towards that. There's been, and I'm seeing, I use, we use Bitdefender here uh, for one of on, on this PC, and it's one, it's constantly reminding me when I go to a banking site hey, do you want to add some extra security to it, which is kind of cool. Two, I get reminded all the time about ransomware, and it's starting to do some things where it keeps track of the files. Now, this is a little annoying, and I don't think they've got it quite figured out yet, but it keeps track, and anytime any file changes in any of those directories you specified, it says, hey, we think, you know, and that's a little, that's kind of like the early days of the, the UAC where uh, where it would pop up for everything, and then you'd be like, okay, no, I'm just changing it. It's okay. There's got to be better ways when we think about because ransomware is a big deal. I mean, it's there's millions of dollars every year that are going out through Bitcoin to ransomware mm -hmm. people that are doing this. There's certainly got to be better ways, Christian, to get ahead of these guys. And I keep thinking, what if I encrypt the files first and make them, you know, unencryptable? From that standpoint, now I don't I don't know the technology from 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 how that goes, but is there a better way for ransomware at this point than than what we've got today? Yeah, so here's how that goes: if you encrypt your files and then they encrypt on top of your encryption, then that just means you have files that are encrypted by someone else, and you're not going to have a running system. <laughs> um, there are better ways to do that, and it's a core part of the research aims that I'm looking at and and working to publish. Um, but there are definitely, you want to be looking for stuff that's predictive, not reactive. And so with ransomware, um, it is the perfect example of stuff that is behavioral based. And so, um, you know, how do you detect that, some, that, a, that a program has encryption capabilities? 
um, we're going to start to, you know, I think as an industry, change the, you know, the things that we see as being warning signs. Um, you know, a standard encryption library might not be a warning sign, but maybe with the advent of ransomware, it's becoming, you know, more elevated, more prevalent. Um, I think that there's also this notion of, you know, kind of two different ways of thinking it. One is you have some initial virus hit somewhere and you want to contain other boxes from getting it. That's been an age-old problem. The second is how do you make the call on saying that something has never been um, detected as malware, you run it and find out that it doesn't, uh, doesn't pan out or it does, but the idea being you're at least taking the shot of saying maybe that is the next ransomware. I don't know. Um, and so when we have systems, computer systems, asking that question of, hey, are you, is this packet ransomware? No. Is this packet ransomware? Yes. Is this packet ransomware? Maybe. How do we answer the maybe question? The industry is really good at saying yes or no. What is the space of maybe and how do we improve that? And that's kind of a really core area that we're looking at right now. Cool. Well, it's always cat and mouse, right? Always, always things coming, always things going, always stuff to work on. Uh, that means Christian will always be well employed. That's what they tell me, but Marine Species. Well, some pretty smart stuff. I don't pretend to understand it. I, I'm the consumer who wants to buy the product that'll protect me, or, or you know, it, it, we always have these discussions, and it reminds me to go back and check. I'm an open DNS guy, and that's one of those services you can use. I think the average guy can use to, yeah, um, you know, just kind of if 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 you can kind of minimize the attack surface on where you're going and open DNS will stop you that's I think that's a, a valuable you know and do they get it right every time no it's <laughs> goes back to the artificial intelligence conversation it's so funny we're so skeptical of artificial intelligence and it making a mistake thinking like automated driving right and we're really concerned about cars making mistakes well I think someone was telling me the stat now is so much, uh, it's looking like the automated vehicles actually have a better driving record than humans do. Because we, we act like we don't make any mistakes, right? You know, right. We, oh, if a machine makes a mistake, it's a big sure. deal. Sure. We make mistakes all the time. I mean, think about impaired, impaired driving, not following the rules. You know, when you program a machine, it does everything exactly the way you tell it to. If you tell it to look before you, turn, you, you switch lanes, it does it every single mm -hmm. Time, you know, don't they don't get lazy, right? They yeah. don't, they don't get distracted by the radio. They don't. No, record, absolutely. They don't and, their phone to operate. Right? You know, it's it's just like the fact that you know Facebook is more accurate at doing facial recognition of your friends than humans are by like five percent. Uh, yeah. It's kind of scary. It, Windows Hello recognizes me every time, and yet I have trouble. Rec sometimes people I seen yesterday or. You know, I'm seeing hundreds of people a semester now when we think about the recruiting I do, and oftentimes I'll have met someone in person, had an interview with them for 30, 35 minutes, and then see them again a month or two later, and I can't, I can't remember, right? The machine would, would, uh, would do that pretty well. And uh, those kinds of features, that's when I need that little heads-up display in my glasses that would tell me who that, who that person is. <laughs> when I see them, that would be cool augmented reality to be able to uh, do some facial recognition. Because there are times I'm like, I should yeah. know. Sorry, I don't. Anything else before we wrap it? No, it sounds like we got a, a lot of space covered. But um, Randy did ask a question that we should probably get to before we do a wrap. Um, he asked, what are the urgent do-it-now things that we as average guys should do for our security at the home? 
um, specifics uh, for we morons. Hmm. Um, maybe I will include this in a more detailed way in uh, the notes, but a number one thing I always preach is people get real excited about like ad blocker plugins and stuff like that, and that's well and good. Look at solutions for doing it at the network level. I can't emphasize enough things like MVPS hosts, things like setting up PFSense, and I understand that people might not have all those, but for example, any sing every single person could go today and download MVPS hosts, and they can do it on a Mac, they can do it on a PC, they can do it on Linux, anything that talks network. Um, it not only gives you an ad-free browsing experience, which you might like if you're watching videos online and doing that kind of thing, it'll keep it'll keep you from inadvertently clicking an advertisement that hijacks your browser and then downloads malware. Um, these are just what I call like the common sense type things. Um, really look into um, kind of more than just antivirus. You have to work on, you know, the attack surface is just about, just as much about the technology as it is about you as a user and a person. Um, stop using the same password on different accounts. Stop doing it. Um, I don't care what password manager you use, but for God's sakes, please use one if it helps you use a different password for each account. Um, start making long and complex ones. Again, let the password manager do the work for you. Um, stop using email addresses in stupid ways. Stop putting your email on every possible subscription list possible and signing up for this and 20% off this. Have multiple inboxes to route different types of traffic and know what type of traffic you can expect from people. Um, if you are you know, prone to phishing scams or likely to click on links, you can reduce the chance that you're going to click on a stupid email um, by having multiple accounts and knowing, okay, this account's for spam, this account I've only given to my family members, uh, this account is for my coworkers. So you know, try, and, try and compartmentalize. Always try and compartmentalize. Um, focus on how you're storing your data. Are you storing all your data in Dropbox or the next thing that's going to be on the front page of, uh, you know, your newspaper of choice? Or are you, you know, storing some of your most sensitive data locally on a hard drive, then encrypting it, then keeping it secure? Um, you know, it's not to say that you need to have everything encrypted, you need to have everything, you know, partitioned off somewhere in a silo, but are you making smart choices about keeping your PII out of the internet, um, keeping your account names untraceable, or using the same username across different sites and services to build a footprint? Are you running more browser plugins than you know what to do with? Stop doing that. All you're doing is giving advertisers a link to saying, this is Jim Collison. You might not know that Jim Collison is a bunch of random letters, numbers, and characters, but they can track you just the same way. And so it doesn't matter if your name is Jim Collison or a bunch of alphanumeric characters, the impact is still the same. Um, Get in the habit of clearing cookies on a nightly basis, whether it's using CC Cleaner or I have my Google Chrome set to when you close Chrome, it automatically wipes everything, temp files, cookies, etc. You shouldn't need them. Oh, but I want to be already logged into my site. Great, use a password manager that autofills them. Other than that, I've heard no reasonable arguments for why you aren't constantly cleaning your cookies and your temp files. Oh, my internet is slow. I want to have stuff saved and cached off. It's a bad reason. Get a better internet connection. Um, there are very few people who benefit from caching files on the internet when most people are now on Verizon files. So unless you are on a dial-up connection, I don't want to hear that argument. 
um, there are a lot of common sense things you can do to reduce that footprint. Maybe that was a little ranty list of like five to seven things that you could be doing right now. Um, I say these emphatically because I, I wish more people asked me that question and, and did these things regularly so that we weren't having these types of conversations. But I really appreciate the question. It's definitely valid. Lots to do. Not all of it convenient for most people. You know, no. Some of it is. Some of it is. Good password it's, manager. Pretty convenient. Well, most of the stuff I've talked about, you know, can take five to ten minutes to set up and maybe thirty or forty minutes to get familiar with. So, yeah, yeah, no, good. All right, good, good reminders. Christian will uh, provide some of those in the show notes. And we, uh, Randy, thanks for jumping out tonight. We announced the show with about forty-five minutes to go. We we're like, hey, we need to get one of these in. Let's just get out there and get it done. And so, we'll, uh, we'll thank you if you're listening to the download. Many of you still are. Uh, we appreciate you guys hanging around, even though we took a good chunk of time off and uh, got a few done this summer. School's back in swing, and Christian and I will continue to get these out uh, whenever we can. So uh, we appreciate you guys listening. Just a couple reminders before we go: don't forget to use the Amazon affiliate link uh, that we use here for the show. the The Average Guy Tech Scholarship Fund is what we call it. Uh, just head out to theaverageguy.tv/amazon whenever you use an Amazon, and that benefits the networks and the things you do. Don't forget to subscribe to the newsletter that's going on. That's weekly now. If you haven't, maybe you only listen to Cyber Frontiers and you're not a home gadget geek. We've made a change to weekly and I kind of update what's going on, including some of the shows that are out during the week. And if I produce a Cyber Frontiers, I always put it in the newsletter so you know it's coming up. Head out to theaverageguy.tv slash subscribe and there's a link right there that you can sign up for. We also want to thank um, uh, not only Christian for the work that... Uh, we do with Maple Grove Partners, but uh, our, the, the, we have video for this, both large and small. We th throw that over at Mediafire, and they host it for us as well. takes a little bit of the bandwidth pressure off of Maple Grove Partners. Christian always tells me, I could easily do that. But we we tried that out because we wanted to work with them, and uh, so we thank Mediafire for the work over there. Well, we're live out here whenever we feel like it. That's kind of the way it goes down to it. We've been, we've been about every third Monday night or something. We usually jump in about 8 p.m. Central, 9 Eastern. We'll follow Christian along in his, in his journey through his senior year. And uh, there's going to be some big changes this year, so we want to make sure you stay tuned to what's going on here. But that will say good night. Good night.